Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. Yes, we're starting the show off with women's soccer. We'll get into NBA free agency and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 15 of The Bridge. Well, a happy Wednesday to everyone on this special episode of The Bridge. Coming to you a couple days after when I would normally put this podcast out. I like to record things on Sunday to give a nice wrap up for the week. But this week was a little bit different because I was able to acquire an interview with a very special guest that's going to come on and talk a little bit about the NBA free agency and a little bit about how he got to where he is today as a national sports talk radio host. That's probably one of the best teases you're going to hear on the bridge, so stay tuned for that, which means thankfully for you guys, I'm not going to ramble on too much about the goings-on from the past week or so. I'll keep things short so you won't be sick of hearing my voice and might enjoy hearing that interview a little bit more than you normally would. There's a couple things I wanted to get into quickly before bringing that guest onto the program, and that is starting with what took the nation by storm, for one day at least, on Sunday night, when the United States women's national team won its record third Women's World Cup title. Crushing Japan 5-2, to two, avenging that loss that they suffered in penalty kicks way back in 2011, and bringing America collectively to its feet. Now I know a lot of people don't religiously watch women's soccer, and I'm happy to admit I also fall into that category. Soccer just doesn't interest me as much as other sports watching it on television. Though the same, of course, can't be said for fans overseas, as football is probably the most popular sport over there. Here we've got American football, we've got basketball, we've got baseball, we've got hoops, we've got weights, we've got balls! There's a Space Jam quote for you. Look that up and see what part of the movie that's in. But anyway, most of the nation was tuned in on Sunday, as you should have been. There's no reason why you shouldn't be rooting wholeheartedly for both the women's and men's teams when they do get into these tournaments that are played against countries from around the world, some more prestigious teams than ours. Athletes in the United States tend to favor the sports that I just previously mentioned, especially on the men's side of things, football, basketball, baseball. That's usually where the money is. That's usually where our best athletes do go to. But the women's team has remained consistent, and it seems like whenever the World Cup comes around, they have a pretty decent chance of winning it. Now, they had not won a World Cup since 1999. You remember that great team with Mia Hammond Co. ending in penalty kicks with Brandi Chastain tearing off her shirt after she hit what would be the game-winning penalty kick 
and secured that World Cup victory. 14 years ago, that changed the landscape of women's soccer, definitely for the better, as probably all of the players that were on this year's U.S. team watched that World Cup religiously and probably fell in love with the game and wanted to do that with their career and bring a World Cup back home to the United States. Now, after coming so close in 2011, this was obviously something that the United States team wanted ever so badly. There were a couple players on the team that would probably be playing in their last World Cup. One of them would be Abby Wambach, who's been one of the faces for the U.S. team as one of those veteran players. She's had that leadership role. She's been their captain. She's been there through thick and thin and has been a great asset to their team. Even though her minutes went down as the World Cup games got more intense, that doesn't mean to say that she did not have a pretty significant impact on the team. But getting to the game itself, this was a game where if you happen to be doing something else and thought, well, you know, it's a soccer game, it's 90 minutes long, there's usually not a lot of scoring, especially in the World Cup championship, I'll finish cutting the grass, I'll finish making this sandwich, I'll run and take a shower, and I won't miss much. Well, if that was the case, you missed a lot. Because after 16 minutes, it was already 4-0 United States. 4-0 U.S. after 16 minutes. You just don't see that happen. Whenever I see a goal in soccer, to me it's like seeing a shooting star or seeing some sort of miracle that's happened. I always feel blessed to have turned on a soccer game and actually see one of the teams score. But for this, scoring was at a premium, and the entertainment value of this particular game was through the roof. The U.S. scored on its first two shots, courtesy of Carly Lloyd, who scored in the third minute and who scored in the sixth minute, which in a way almost put the game away for the United States. This was a team coming into the game that hadn't allowed a goal since the opening round game against Australia, and they were actually working toward getting the record for most minutes without allowing a goal. Unfortunately, they came within just seconds of breaking that record, but we'll get to that very shortly. 14th minute mark, Lauren Holiday scores a goal puts the United States team up by three. And then two minutes later, Carly Lloyd decides that she wants to score the fastest hat trick in World Cup history, both on the men's and women's side. She ends up getting the ball at midfield and just fires one at the goal. And you're thinking, there's no possible way she's going to score from that far out. I mean, that's something you do when you're playing FIFA on your Xbox and your mother walks into the room and you accidentally hit the wrong button and you end up firing a shot from somewhere on the field where you shouldn't be firing a shot from. She lets this shot go, and it's soaring through the air, and the camera is slowly panning toward the goal, and you see that Japan's goalie is way out of the net. She's running back, trying to catch up to the ball. She reaches up, it grazes off her hand, and goes into the goal. 54 yards out, Carly Lloyd nails the back of the net. Absolutely crazy that she was able to make that goal. So up for nothing, you think the game is over. You would think you wouldn't even have to continue watching it anymore because who's going to come back from a four-goal deficit? Japan was helped out that the goals did come so early in the match, so they had plenty of time to at least start picking away at the lead. 
They scored in the 27th minute, which ended that streak set by the U.S. defense and goalie Hope Solo for not allowing a goal for more than 500 minutes. They actually just missed out on Germany's record of 540 minutes by merely seconds. So the United States is 4-1. They actually give up their own goal, scoring in their own net in the 52nd minute. Tobin Heath scored the final goal two minutes later to put the United States up 5-2, and that would be more than enough to bring home that record third World Cup. Now, I'm sure people were wondering, well, who was actually watching this game? But as I mentioned, most of the nation was tuned in, rooting for their country, being patriotic, painting their faces red, white, and blue, going to the game with an eagle mask on and flapping your arms after every goal was scored like that one dude was doing at the World Cup game. That World Cup game doubled the viewership from the U.S. finals just four years ago, and about 20.3 million people watched the World Cup. Some other sources said it was somewhere around 25 million, but you get the point. There were enough people watching the World Cup. In fact, I believe it was the highest rated sporting event on Fox since the Red Sox broke their curse in the World Series way back in 2004. Now, do I think this is going to have a major impact on the sport of women's soccer and in soccer in general in the United States? No. I don't think it's going to bring in 25 million new viewers and have 25 million new people start following United States teams and watching their games religiously and getting the packages on cable TV. The United States team winning this World Cup is certainly going to help the sport more so than hurt it. As I mentioned, when that team won in 1999, tons of young female soccer athletes wanted to play soccer and wanted to get up to that elite level that they watched those superstars get to when they won that World Cup. The same thing will probably happen after the team won this year. Young soccer athletes around the United States watching this team come together, watching the nation come together, watching this team play, it's definitely something to aspire to. So don't be surprised if you see a pretty major bump in that particular sport. Soccer, if you look at the statistics, is slowly becoming more and more popular with the younger generation. Baseball is having a really hard time tailoring to a younger audience. The game is too long, etc., etc. The NBA sometimes generates its own specific crowd. The NFL is always going to have viewership unless they keep changing the rules and making things even more and more ridiculous so the sport is just a shell of its former self. But as far as young people are concerned, more and more young Americans are getting involved with the sport of soccer, and that's just the facts. Google it. Check it out. So it was great to see the women's team win. It was an incredibly entertaining game. I thoroughly enjoyed watching it, and it was nice to bring home that World Cup. And as far as soccer is concerned, it's always great when one of our United States teams ends up going into these tournaments against other countries who eat, sleep, and breathe soccer, and we beat them. And we don't even really care. We just want to drink beer, wear red, white, and blue clothing, and run around the streets screaming, USA, USA. And boy, I'll tell you what, that was certainly happening on Sunday. What a great way to finish off 4th of July weekend. As Japan can now testify, you don't want to mess with us the day after 4th of July. Now, moving on from that, 
there were a lot of major things happening in the world of the National Basketball Association over the past week as NBA free agency was opened up last week and the signings came in like wildfire. Some teams took out their pocketbooks and were ready to make moves and did so. Other teams didn't fare as well. I'm just going to briefly run over some of the teams because the guest I'm going to have on next is going to speak of NBA free agency as well, and he'll do a lot better of a job than I'll be able to do on it. But I wanted to start with the Los Angeles Lakers, my Los Angeles Lakers, and just go over some of the things that they once again were unable to do. You may remember back about eh, three summers ago when Dwight Howard finished his first year with the Lakers and was up for free agency. The Lakers brass and Kobe Bryant went after him to try to re-sign him to a long-term deal. Dwight Howard really wasn't a fan of playing with Kobe Bryant. He really didn't like what was happening in L.A., and he took a pretty big pay cut to just get the hell out of there and go play with the Houston Rockets. That was a sign of what was about to come as far as people wanting to play in Los Angeles and wanting to play with Kobe Bryant. So the next year, Carmelo Anthony's up for free agency. LeBron was in rumblings about where he was going to go. And of course, the Lakers threw their fishing lines out at both those guys, specifically Carmelo, to try and maybe woo him to Los Angeles, bring his wife along with him so she can do her Hollywood thing and bring home a little bit of extra cash, along with, of course, Melo's long line of fashion products like hats and socks and pocket squares. But it just didn't work out. He had a sit-down conversation with Kobe Bryant. They both realized they probably wouldn't do well together, and he went back to New York for five years and way too much money, which the Knicks still continue to eat and will for the next couple years, but that's for another day. He decided he didn't want to come to L.A., and it was another summer loss without getting any major free agents. So last season, the Lakers threw this lineup onto the court. Kobe was out for the entire year after getting hurt. They continued to pay him way too much money because they gave him way too much money when he signed his last deal, which was more of like a, hey, thanks for your patronage. Thanks for your service. Here's $24 million, and we're never going to be able to do anything in the salary cap. It's all right, though. Steve Nash was, oh, wait a minute. He wasn't on the floor either. He ended up retiring, and they had to eat his contract, too. So it was just all smiles and flowers in L.A. land. The Lakers were a horrendous basketball team, the worst season in franchise history, but they lucked out and got the second pick of the NBA draft. And as I spoke about a couple shows ago, they were able to make some pretty decent moves and look ahead to the future. So coming into this free agency, they have a couple players in mind as who they want to go after. They liked Kevin Love, but he didn't waste any time in announcing that he was going to re-sign with the Cleveland Cavaliers for five years, even though he did so with the Players' Tribune and took some weird picture of him at the beach hanging out and wrote a little letter to tell everybody he was coming back. Thanks, Kev. Appreciate it. So he was off the table pretty quickly. The Lakers also wanted to go after Jimmy Butler in Chicago, and he was interested in perhaps at least sitting down with L.A., but then realized he wasn't able to do it with whatever it said within his contract, and there were a lot of legal terms thrown out. The point was he couldn't leave Chicago to sign with L.A., at least for the way he wanted to do it, so he ended up re-signing back with Chicago. I believe it's for four years with an opt-out after the third year or five years with an opt-out after four. Whatever it may be, when he's able to leave Chicago, he'll be 28. So he's still got a lot of years ahead of him when that happens. 
So he was off the table. Then the big target that the Lakers wanted was to woo LaMarcus Aldridge, who decided that he would indeed be leaving the Portland Trailblazers for greener pastures. So they bring LaMarcus Aldridge in. They sit him down with all the big wigs in the Lakers organization. Kobe Bryant's there. They put this presentation together about life will be like if he decides to sign with Los Angeles. A lot of the glitz and glam that come with playing in a Lakers uniform, but not a lot of the X's and O's types of things and where the team is going to be headed in the next couple years. Kobe gives a little three-minute speech and talks about how he wants Aldridge to be his Pau Gasol, who, if you remember, brought two championships to L.A. in back-to-back seasons. That was one of his major points, him stepping into that role that Paul Gasol had, bringing another championship back to L.A., etc., etc. Well, Aldridge leaves this meeting, and he's not incredibly pleased because he was not impressed with what the Lakers had to say about the future of the team, those X's and O's types of things, where he fits into the game plan. They were more concerned about what he could do in his off time living in Los Angeles. Basically, they blew it, which isn't really too surprising if you think about it, but they blew it. So he's off the table, you would think, until a couple days later, he decides that, you know what, he's going to offer them a second chance for a sit-down. This would be like if you took a girl out on a first date to the bar and got pissed drunk, went back to her room, woke up the next morning completely embarrassed, and she said, you know what, I really like you, though. Why don't we go out and try this again? And you're beside yourself. I can't believe she wants to take me back. I got one more chance. I won't let you down. Well, to make a long story short, the Lakers didn't impress LaMarcus Aldridge the second time around either. I mean, you have to think there was a part of him that wanted to play in L.A. for wanting to meet with them twice. But such was not the case. LaMarcus Aldridge decided that he wanted to play basketball with the San Antonio Spurs. The Spurs, which, while this LaMarcus Aldridge talk was going on, were making extreme moves to make sure that they had enough room and enough cap space and enough players to woo Aldridge to the team. I'll get to the Spurs in just a minute once I wrap up this Lakers fiasco. So Aldridge is gone. They put in a bid for DeAndre Jordan, who wanted to leave the Los Angeles Clippers because he and Chris Paul were in a little bit of a tiff. Chris Paul was a little bit too hard on DeAndre. DeAndre thought he could be a more influential part of their offense or in an offense in general, which I don't really understand because what more could he bring to the table besides just alley-oop dunks? Certainly ain't going to make you free throws. But they miss out on DeAndre Jordan. He also was not impressed. He signs with Mark Cuban in the Dallas Mavericks. So the Lakers start going farther and farther down the list, and they fly a couple of their brass out to Washington, D.C. to meet with Greg Monroe and see if they could bring him to L.A. But Greg Monroe turns the Lakers down, basically tells them to eat a bag, does the same thing when the New York Knicks come calling. I don't want to play for you people. I want to play with the team that has a bright future and might have a chance to win some basketball games. So he signs with Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Bucks. You know your franchises are bad if a gentleman chooses the Milwaukee Bucks over the Lakers and the Knicks. Oh, how the times, they are a-changing. Of course, money talks. But if the Lakers and the Knicks are giving you the same money that you would get in Milwaukee, just goes to show you how things are changing in the NBA. 
So with that whiff on Greg Monroe, the Lakers end up 0 for Tuesday with their free agency batting average. They go back to the drawing board and get some signings. They basically traded a ham sandwich for Indiana Pacers' big man Roy Hibbard. They signed the 7-2 center for a one-year deal and take up some of his contract, and hopefully we'll be able to sign him again next year if he produces with the team. They signed six-man of the year Lou Williams from Toronto, bring him in to be a little bit of a veteran leadership role as far as the guards are concerned. He's a guy that could come off the bench, give you some scoring, help out those younger guards, especially D'Angelo Russell, get more acclimated to the NBA. They also pick up Brandon Bass from the Boston Celtics. He averaged about 16 points per game. He'll be able to work along well with Julius Randle down low in the post as well. So they brought in a couple pieces. There's rumors they're going to try and dump Swaggy P's contract and get him the hell out of L.A. There's also rumors they're looking to trade Jeremy Lin because Lin Sanity was never really brought to Los Angeles after it made a brief, very brief appearance in New York. So they're trying to do the best they can to have a decent season in what is probably going to be Kobe Bryant's final season. Now getting to the Spurs, I mentioned they signed LaMarcus Aldridge, but to get there, they made some pretty spectacular moves a couple days beforehand. They signed Kawhi Leonard a couple minutes after midnight, brought him back for five years. They were able to keep Danny Green, their sniper three-point shooter, for another four or so years. They got rid of Tiago Splitter to give them a little bit more leeway. And when they signed Aldridge, Tim Duncan decided to come back for another season, as did Manu Ginobili, and I'm sure they'll also bring back Tony Parker. And a surprise signing was in David West, who decided to leave the Pacers and the $12.6 million contract he had on the table for this season. Just throw that away, leave Indiana to come play for the Spurs as his career winds down in an attempt to hopefully bring back a ring for him. He ends up taking somewhere around an $11 million pay cut because he signed for the veteran minimum in San Antonio, and he's basically getting pocket change compared to what he would have in Indiana. Just goes to show you what his status was in wanting to play for the Pacers, and it goes to show that I guess he's financially stable enough where now all that really matters is for him to get a ring. I mean, we saw how well that worked for Gary Payton and Karl Malone when they came to the Lakers, right? Right? Oh, wait. I'm sure he hopes that he fares better than they did. But those were the major signings, at least as far as I can tell, in the first week of the NBA free agency signings. It's actually a little surprising that so many big-name superstars ended up signing such long-term deals. Many of the players did opt for the five-year max money contracts rather than going for maybe a two-year with a one-year opt-out type deal and waiting for the money to start rolling in when the NBA TV contracts kick in in the next two seasons. The salary caps for teams skyrocket and there's going to be more money left on the table. It seems like players wanted to go for the money. They wanted that guaranteed money in their pocket. Who knows what could happen in the next coming years if there's a strike or if they should get hurt and that would affect a long-term contract as well. You put $100 million in front of somebody, it's hard to say no to that. But speaking of the NBA, the guest that I alluded to 
earlier at the start of the show is somebody that I thoroughly enjoy listening to on Sports Talk Radio and was one of the inspirations for me to get back behind the microphone, start up my own podcast, and really get my feet wet once again talking about sports on air and trying to develop myself into a little bit better of a radio personality. I'm, of course, talking about Tom Byrne. He just does a damn good job talking about sports, and he also happens to be a University of Scranton graduate. So he was kind enough to agree to come on to the bridge. We've been talking back and forth the past couple weeks about when would be a good time to have him on. And the timing for having him on is great. He's got a vast knowledge of the NBA, so he's going to weigh in a little bit on the free agent signings over the past week and tell us a little bit about how he ended up at the University of Scranton, how he got involved in the world of sports broadcasting, and how he was able to get to where he is today with two national sports talk shows on Sirius XM Radio. So without further ado, here's our interview. We're here talking with Tom Byrne, the national sports talk show host on Sirius XM, NBA Radio, and Mad Dog Sports Radio. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at one Tom Byrne. He does follow back his listeners. So, Tom, thanks again for coming to the show. And I just wanted to talk to you about your experience at the University of Scranton graduating in 2003. I wanted to start with what brought you to Scranton and what were some of the things that were able to get you interested with sports media and specifically broadcasting and radio? Well, I always knew I wanted to do some sort of sports broadcast. Growing up in the Philadelphia area, I always loved Harry Cow. So therefore, I envisioned myself being the next Harry Cow. Right? I think we all did, who had interest in being a sports broadcaster. So it was later on that I got into the sports talk thing because my father was always big sports talk radio. Not only the local channels in Philly, but even Mike and the Mad Dog on New York 660 channels. So I always had my eye on it as far as Scran is concerned. You know, it's funny. I thought I was going to go to Temple my junior year in high school at College Catholic. I thought I was going to go to LaSalle my senior year. And last minute, I decided to take a trip up to University of Scranton, and I just liked the hands-on feel, the fact that I would have a chance to call the guys and girls basketball games eventually because it was Division three, so they allowed students to do that. So I just liked everything about the work study, the ability to work in the TV and radio station that last minute. It helped that a couple of my better friends were going there as well, to be fair. But at the end of the day, I just decided, let's go to Scranton. And you know what? I don't regret it at all because things have worked out quite well. And they got a very underrated communications program up there. As far as the year, yeah. though, they're very good, as you know, at giving you that hands-on opportunity to really just go and be able to do whatever you want if you have an interest in it. So how did being able to work with the radio station and covering those basketball games and probably as well working with TV really get you more involved and really wanting to do this as a career? Well, it was a tremendous experience calling the basketball games. I had a couple of friends on the team, of course, that helped. But nonetheless, it was just the experience just to be able to work on your craft, figure out how play-by-play is for you. I liked play-by-play. I did a little play-by-play for a very small station, Levittown, PA, Trent, New Jersey, right after graduating. Uh, it took a while to get into sports radio. I quickly realized I wanted to do sports radio simply because I'm opinionated and I want to give opinions. The problem with doing the play-by-play is you can throw an opinion in here and there, but that's not really your job. So I ended up going to another way, but you find out what's for you and what's not for you. Not like I found out that play-by-play couldn't be what I wanted to do in the future, but I also found that, you know, I might want to take a look at the sports radio stuff, too. I probably should have done a sports radio show at Scranton. That was a mistake not to. And, you know, maybe I could go that way 
and it worked out for me, fortunately. How did you end up working up through the ranks and eventually ending up on 97.5 The Fanatic? Because that was really where you were probably able to be much more exposed to not only the fans, but to more professional athletes and really get involved in sports media at a higher stage. You know, it took a while. I, like a lot of other young kids coming out of Scranton, had to go ahead and take jobs nobody necessarily wanted. My first job was a background job in a TV studio at Philadelphia Park. I also had a job at TV Guide, and I was just kind of waiting, biding my time. I regretted at this point not having done an internship. But eventually, I got a call from the then assistant program director at 97.5 The Fanatic about being an intern, despite the fact I no longer could get credit. At that point, fortunately for me, that wasn't frowned upon. You could still sort of do that thing. They regulate that much more than they used to. Right. But long story short, that's what got me in, and I did enough behind the scenes for free that they gave me an opportunity to produce. That was never really my thing, though. I wasn't a very good producer either. And eventually got a chance to do update anchors and press there. Eventually got a chance to fill in on the weekend and press there to the point where I just kind of worked my way up doing updates to Mike and Mike. And, and next thing you know, I had the night share, and I just didn't relinquish it until SiriusXM made an offer. So I was fortunate. I never had to leave the market. This isn't always the case. If you're going to be involved in sports broadcasting, more times than not, you're going to have to leave the market. Was it ever difficult for you in the beginning to try to get a really significant handle on all of the major sports? I know you're a huge NBA fan, obviously, probably one of the better historians next to Mad Dog Russo on Sirius, even though he's more of the 50s, 60s types of players than you are. But was there ever a time where you really had to develop your craft a little bit more to be able to talk about not only basketball, but football and baseball and be able to interact with the fans about whatever they wanted to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. You need to buff up on your national sport big time when you go national. There's no doubt about it. Obviously, when you're doing local in Philadelphia, it's a very parochial town. You don't necessarily have to do national sports outside of the big things like the NBA Finals and the Super Bowl, obviously, things like that. But yeah, it was a little bit of an eye-opener. I had to buff up because I wasn't necessarily as in tune with all the teams outside of Philly as I am now. So yeah, there's no getting around that. I mean, if you're going to do the national level, you better start to figure out who's on the Seattle Mariners, who is the sixth man on the Detroit Pistons. I mean, you don't have to go too far with it because at the end of the day, you're not going to talk extensively about those two particular subjects. But you get the idea. Right. Things that would have meant nothing in the past mean something now. And I'm exaggerating to an extent. The Seattle Mariners are never going to be a big topic on national radio. Baseball as a whole is no longer. That's been one of my teams recently. A big topic on national radio. But you get the point. You can't just sit there and pay attention to the team to like. You have to know everybody. Right. Well, it had to be a pretty big switch because working in Philly, obviously you're getting a ton of phone calls about the Eagles, about the Phillies, about anybody that they care about at that moment or anybody that they'd like to throw under the bus that didn't perform the way they wanted, you know, those Philly fans. But when you get into that higher market, it's a little bit more of a challenge. As you mentioned, when somebody calls in to talk about tennis or somebody calls in to talk about hockey, you at least have to have some form of idea of what you're talking about. So how are you able to develop your own radio voice because when you have a national program like you do you obviously have to have a pretty significant dialogue at certain points in the show and be able to drive where your show is going to go how long did it take you to figure out what you wanted to be and really develop your voice in radio i don't know i guess it came naturally only because 
I listened to sports radio for so long. Like I said, my father grew up listening to Mike and the Dog, and of course it's cool now to be on the namesake channel on SiriusXM. You know, I listened to some of the local guys in Philly. Didn't like all of them, but I would listen even to get a sense of style, how different guys run their shows, what works, what doesn't, when the tease, when the tease becomes annoying at certain points. And I think it's always important to give opinions. You can't worry about offending people as long as you don't make it personal. You just got to give strong opinions. And as long, again, as you don't kill guys personally, then that's fair. It's fair game. These are millionaire sport Brad athletes. And if you call them out for lack of effort or lack of execution, it's all fair game. And as long as you're not a fence sitter, but you're fair at the same time, and you have a certain way to structure a show, eventually somebody might listen to your show, and you'll get a chance to prove it on an even higher level. And when you came into this field social media was really starting to take off. And it, it's definitely one of the things that drives not only the radio, but sports broadcasting, sports journalism. Everybody seems to want to have a say, both on Twitter and on Facebook, and call into your show as well and be able to give their opinions. How has that really had an impact on the show that you host now, where you're able to interact with a lot more callers, especially on Sirius? They do a great job in getting a lot of people onto the show to voice their opinions. How has that really worked into how you've been able to do your shows? I'm not as big a Twitter guy as I should be. There are a lot of guys who want it all day. That's just not me. I wasn't even on Twitter until I got to SiriusXM. I realized that it was probably a mistake. I should have been on in Philly. They didn't really press me about it, frankly, there. SiriusXM is a little bit more on top of it. Not that they care all that much, but they prefer you to be on and have a little interaction. So that's important. And there are many folks who can't call in for whatever reason. They have to get an office. They don't feel comfortable on the phone. They might be a little nervous. It gives them another outlet. Now, it also gives the haters an outlet, too, those who are jealous that they don't sit in seat. And anytime they don't hear something they like about their team, they're going to take it out on you. So you have to be careful before you push send when you respond to a lot of people. I just ignore it. Most people do. But you always hear, not just athletes, but sports radio hosts getting themselves in some trouble, too, on there. Bottom line is it's definitely a good tool. Absolutely. I don't believe Twitter is going to be the last one. There's got to be something else. I can't believe we're going to be sitting here trying to figure out how to make a point in 140 characters <laughs> for the next decade. I, I wish I was smart enough to come up with the next big social media site, though. You and me both. There's definitely going to be something coming up after that. As far as the callers are concerned, I know you guys take a lot of callers both on NBA and on Mad Dog, and you get some very intelligent callers, some people that really know what they're talking about, and of course you have to deal with some duds as well. How are you able to manage how that conversation goes and to continue driving that conversation so they don't take up too much of your time, but they're still able to give you a point and give you things to talk about for the future minutes. Well, people have different ways of dealing with callers. I mean, I always want to listen to the callers and make them a part of the show. I don't necessarily want to give them a platform for five minutes, but at the end of the day, they're not necessarily tuning in to listen to what callers say. But at the same time, I think callers are important. Some sports radios, including ESPN, outside of Callum Cowherd, they don't take calls. I think that's a major mistake. I think it is. I think callers lead to debate, and that's what it's about. Again, as long as it doesn't become personal, good sports debate is a healthy thing, passionate, intense, and callers help bring that. And sometimes they even bring angles you didn't necessarily see before a particular phone call. So it leads to even a greater discussion in many respects. So I think callers are essential to sports talk radio. Now, one, you got to get callers to be on the outlet that's fortunate enough to get them. But there are those who choose not to, 
and I find that boring radio more times than not. And I think that's what stands out about Sirius is that you take so many callers and they give so many great opinions. I mean, it is nice to obviously hear the hosts give their opinions, but when they're on for three or four hours, it kind of gets to the point where you're looking for that another voice. So I think that's one of the things that stands out about Sirius, and you're able to have that other voice. As far as other voices are concerned, I know oftentimes you end up co-hosting, especially on your NBA program with some of the greats of the game. One would be the White Mamba, Brian Scalabrini. Vinny Del Negro is on as, as your guy sometimes. I'm sure you've had another slew of hosts that you've been able to share the microphone with. Are there a couple guys that stand out who you've really enjoyed being able to co-host a radio program with? Yeah, I enjoy all those guys. Scalabrini does a great job. I think Vinny Del Negro does a great job. I was on with a bunch of guys. George Carl was on with, although he's done a terrible job here with Sacramento the last couple of months. You know, some guys are better than others. I don't know. I don't want to necessarily call certain guys out, but it's definitely an experience. Now you have to be careful. Sometimes these players still have relationships with certain players and coaches, and they don't necessarily want to be critical in certain ways, and that's problematic. But I always try to be true to myself and give opinions no matter what, even if my co-host is going to be a little annoyed about it. But it's just about being fair, and if you're fair, then it's going to work out more times than not. But, yeah, it's cool. You know, Gail Goodrich, for instance, the first to win that UCLA championship on the John Wooden back-to-back years, part of the 33-win in a row, 72 Lakers, killed Monroe in the finals in 72. I mean, these are certain guys that you wouldn't dream of having on as guests, let alone co-hosting with. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Jerry Stackhouse being a Philly guy, former third overall pick of the Sixers, who's very laid back with God, Jerry. So, yeah, that's part of the sports talk radio experience. I like doing my own show. But when you're on with somebody like that, hey, that's not a bad thing. Right, especially with your NBA knowledge that you've had. I'm sure it's great to pick their brains about certain topics that are going on currently that they can also add into. I wanted to ask real quick as well, when you're on, especially Mad Dog, when football season's going on, you usually get to do the late show, which means the NFL games are ending, so you get to talk about those right away. Same thing for other weekends where sporting events happen to be ending and you happen to be on the radio and get all those calls fresh when games are over and you were able to kind of keep up with them as the show goes on. Is there a game that sticks out to you or an event where you've happened to have been on the air for and were able to immediately discuss that and have an opinion on when it was over? Oh, yeah, quite a few. Last year's Super Bowl comes to mind first. I mean, after the decision to throw the ball instead of running the ball at Marshawn Lynch. I mean, that's a heck of an experience to be on the air right after that, giving a fresh opinion. So that comes to mind. A lot of those point out the Super Bowl year before for Mad Dog Sports Radio, even going back to 975 days, I used to do our post-game show after the Eagles games and Miracle in the Meadowlands Part 2. I'll never forget that. We were setting up the show after a loss. Next thing you know, it's a win yeah, wow. at uh, one of the local bars in Mayfair. So those are the games that come to mind before any other. And also, I would say the 2008 World Series, I had a chance to do some post-games during that tremendous Phillies run. So those are always fun because your first react is a fresh, passionate, intense opinion off the cuff, and that makes it special. Well, I'll tell you what, the party at the University of Scranton after the Phillies won the World Series was something that I've never seen and should be experienced oh, by sure. all. It was unbelievable, of course. The next year, you know, not so much. The next couple of years right. and now, not so much. But I wanted to get your thoughts real quick on the NBA. Obviously, we had these huge signings with free agency over the past couple of days. Some teams made out like bandits. Other teams didn't really fare as well. The first team I wanted to bring to the table was my Lakers and... And we fell into another year. It seems like this is summer number three where they went out after all these 
big free agents and came up completely empty, whiffing on mm-hmm. Kevin Love, Lamarcus Aldridge, DeAndre Jordan, Greg Monroe even. Greg Monroe. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on what this means for the Lakers, that they went after all these big names, as they always do. They even sat LaMarcus Aldridge down twice, and he still went elsewhere. They did get a couple signings in the next couple days and scraping the bottom of the barrel just trying to get at least something. But what were your thoughts about what happened with the Lakers and where they should move forward in the future? Third straight year, like you said, they're left at the golfer. Fact is, guys don't necessarily want to play with Kobe Bryant. He's a great player, top 10 player, arguably all time. You know, probably borderline somewhere in that range. Bottom line, though, right now, Don guys just don't want to play with him because he won't play the Robin role. He always wants to be the Batman role. Nobody wants to win more than Kobe Bryant. But Kobe Bryant needs to be the guy who's getting the headlines. You go ahead and compare him, for instance. Tim Duncan, who I think goes down in front of Kobe in the all-time pantheon, he is a guy willing to take less. He is a guy willing to play a Robin type of role, and that's why they are all of a sudden getting the Marcus Aldridge. David West is coming over to play for $1.4 million rather than $12.6. He opted out of in Indiana. You know, Carmelo was never going to go to L.A. The Marcus Aldridge wasn't going to L.A. after he met with Kobe. There's a reason the White Howard got the heck out of town. Kobe's an egomaniac. He can live with it if he's in his prime because he gives you a chance almost single-handedly to win a championship to put the proper pieces around him. But right now, he's just another two-guard in this league, quite frankly, and it's not worth the headache if you're one of these big-time free agents. Now, after he leaves, will I be surprised that they start getting some free agents again? No, I won't. Especially next year's free agent class is, is going to be another big one. It seems to happen every year. Were you surprised that a lot of players took the guaranteed money when they were signing their deals in this particular summer? There were rumors, of course, that some players would take one of those one-year deals and then opt out when the salary cap increases with the television deals. But a lot of guys went with the five-year guaranteed money, $100 million, $80 million, whatever it may be, to just get that on the table and make sure they were paid. Did that surprise you at all, or do you think that was a great decision for them to do that? Yeah, I'm a little surprised. I thought guys would set themselves up to maximize their earning potential. That's what LeBron went, but Kevin Love, I was shocked by that. Not that he's returning. I said all year he's returning to Cleveland, Ohio. But I really thought he'd take a two-year deal with an opt-out clause after one year and maximize his earning potential. He didn't do that. The market's all like an opt-out, but later than I thought. Yeah, guys seem to be going for the guaranteed money, which makes sense. Got to fit tearing ACL or, you know, having a victular bone problem in the foot, not getting the ramp. So I get why they're doing it, but I am surprised that they're doing it. And we mentioned a couple players just before DeAndre Jordan leaving to go to the Mavericks. Humorously enough, a tiffed with Chris Paul, who seemed like he would have been a great player to match up with Kobe Bryant, since he seems to have that similar mindset. It's funny that they didn't end up getting on that same team a couple years ago, and that trade got shot down, because it seems like nobody wants to play with Chris Paul either. But we have the Spurs pretty much signing everyone you could imagine, bringing everyone back, as well as adding pieces. Is there a particular team that sticks out? out to you that really won this free agency not only just the Spurs but in general and a team that really helped their cause in going for the finals this year? Well Cleveland because they didn't lose Kevin Love. Kevin Love returned. That's huge for them. I think they would have won the title if they had Kevin Love, Kyrie, and LeBron James all healthy. They bring them back. Here comes Mo Williams. I don't think they're done. Don't be surprised if Jamal Crawford, somebody like that, out of the board. So just keeping this roster intact. And we know LeBron's going is a success for them. Dallas played out well. I don't think it makes sense. A championship competitor, though, it really is San Antonio. It's the easy answer, but they would have been done because the big three was too old. 
big three being Parker, who was atrocious in the playoffs. You better hope that's because of injury. Ginobili, who should have seriously considered retirement. And, of course, Duncan's all NBA 13. But to get Marcus Aldridge, to get David West cheap, they have been phenomenal. And, and at this point, they're once again the favorite in the West. I still am not going to sleep on Oklahoma City. But you have those two, and then you'll have Golden State. And the West will be fascinating. I agree with all those points, and there's definitely going to be more than enough for you guys to talk about on air from now until the NBA season starts, as well as getting into football and baseball. It never ends. So thanks a lot for your time, Tom. I really appreciate you coming on. As I mentioned, you could find him on SiriusXM, NBA Radio, and Mad Dog Radio, and follow him on Twitter. Thanks again for coming on. I hope we can talk soon, this time on your show, and you could lead the way. Tom, best of luck to you. Thanks a lot, Tom. Appreciate it. That was Tom Byrne, Sirius XM Radio, Mad Dog, Sports Radio, and NBA Radio. Great to talk to. I've been on his show several times as a caller, not so much as a colleague, but he really has a lot to say about the NBA. Whenever I'm looking to talk about NBA, he's usually the way I go. So he brought up a lot of good points about the NBA free agency and different teams that were able to win out on the signings. So once again, I can't thank him enough for coming on the show, not only adding another voice to the sports discussion, but also providing some insight on how he was able to get to where he is today in the sports broadcasting world. That being said, there's no way I'm going to be able to top that interview, so we're going to put an end on this week's show. You can listen to previous episodes of The Bridge on my website at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can also find all episodes of The Bridge by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, which is a great way to keep you occupied during your journeys to and from work. I know, I know, we didn't get into the MLB All-Star Game, but that's not happening until Tuesday. So I promise I'll get to you before then with who made the American League and National League rosters, who got snubbed, and what we can expect to see from that game on Tuesday. We'll also take a deeper dive into baseball and go over some of the teams that have been dominating the league, some of the teams that might be a little bit of a disappointment. We'll also talk about A-Rod's 3,000 hit and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.